Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant. We welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying your weekend. It's a politically charged time in America and it may be that way through next year's elections. Later, Kentucky-based human resources expert Brian Williams will talk about navigating the workplace when the topics are tense. That and some other hot on-the-job topics coming up in just a little bit. But first, Democratic candidate for Congress Josh Hicks is here. He's running next year and his goal is to to knock off Republican Congressman Andy Barr in Central Kentucky. Hicks is a veteran, a former police officer and an attorney, and he comes from a family of folk singers as well and was a Republican until 2016. Hicks narrowly lost a race for the State House last year to longtime State Representative Stan Lee. Now Hicks is looking to serve in the nation's capital. Josh Hicks joining us today on Kentucky Newsmakers. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell us, uh, you know, about yourself uh, what brought you to this decision to jump into a race for Congress sure and and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about myself a little bit because I'm from Fleming County I grew up on a farm there in Fleming County my mom and dad still live on that farm my sister and her husband live on the other end of it out on T run and grew up the same way a lot of folks in that kind of area grow up you know cutting the back and stripping it and selling it and working on neighbors farms and working cows and putting in hay working with your hands you know I went to Fleming County High School. I played football there and, and was fortunate enough to get to go to Georgetown College and, and play football there as well over in Scott County, but was, was probably a little better at football than I was at school, so I didn't, I didn't make it but a couple of years. I dropped out and, and, and had to find something to do, so I went to work for the same construction company my dad worked for. I was an iron worker and a rigger, traveled all over working shut down jobs. Did that for almost a year and then decided my family had a strong history of military service. My dad was in the Army, my grandfather's was in the Army, and I thought, well, you know, maybe that would be a good thing for me, get a little direction in my life. So uh, I went to join. Uh, the military walked into the Army recruiting station and asked them how tough their physical fitness requirements were, and they told me, well, Josh, they're no big deal. It won't be that bad. <laughs> so I walked across the hallway and stuck my head in the Marine Corps recruiter's office and asked them, how, how hard are your physical fitness requirements? And they said, Josh, it'll be the hardest thing you've ever done in your entire life. So just a few weeks later, I was on a bus to Marine Corps boot camp, Paris Island, South Carolina, because I was looking for that challenge. Uh, spent 13 weeks there, did a month of combat training there at Camp Geiger, and then got my permanent duty station at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I deployed twice with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, um, came back after my deployments and was a platoon sergeant. Uh, for maintenance platoon there at headquarters and service battalion. Then got my honorable discharge in 2003 and my wife and young daughter and I moved back to Kentucky and I started looking for a job. So I applied at several police departments. I had a real drive for public service. I started applying at police departments, applied at Flemingsburg, I applied at Maysville, uh, both, both close right around where we were living and neither of them were hiring at the time. So I got a job selling cars at Paul Miller Ford for about six months. Um, I was fortunate enough that Maysville called me back, hired me as a police officer, sent me over to EKU in, in Madison County, and I went through the Department of Criminal Justice training. I thought that was one of the finest police academies in the, in the entire country. Went back to Maysville and started serving as a patrol officer and then on the emergency response team and then as a certified training officer, training new police recruits when they were fresh out of the academy. Then you eventually end up in law school and you're <laughs> a lawyer. This is a, a, a long resume yes, and so sir. now it ends uh, uh, that you're a candidate for Congress. How did that happen? Well, you, you know, like I said, I'm from Fleming County. And so I, I started believing that maybe regular folks' problems weren't being addressed, that maybe 
we weren't electing regular folks to Congress, and, and that caused there to be the focus to leave sort of what is affecting everyday people in their life. Can they put gas in their truck? Can they pay their rent? Can they afford to go to the doctor when they don't feel well? And when I didn't feel like there was a focus on that and I felt like that was something I had the drive to do, you know, running for this office and taking on this, this big challenge just seemed like a logical next step for me. Do you anticipate a, a primary fight for the Democratic nomination? You know, I, I don't know. And what I'll say is I'm going to run my race and take my message to folks and tell them what I care about and why I think it's similar to what they care about. If there is, then, then that'll be just fine. We mentioned you were a Republican until 2016. Yes, sir. What changed? You know, I just became convinced that, that regular voices weren't being heard, that regular people's problems weren't being addressed. And frankly, what concerned me the most is that that corporate influence seemed to be corrupting our politics. And, and it seemed like representatives and folks in Washington, D.C. were much more concerned about getting a big corporate PAC donation or, or doing something for a corporation. All the folks here in Kentucky and, and elsewhere were just being left behind. Let's uh, talk about where you stand on some uh, some key issues. Uh, first of all, with the context of last weekend's uh, you know horrible mass shootings that yes, happened in uh, Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas, uh, there have been immediately calls to do something on gun safety. There's some indication now that uh, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell uh, of Kentucky uh, is going to allow a discussion of that at least. Uh, can you give us a framework of what uh, you might support in that regard? I can, and, and I'm a I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment. I have been a hunter and an outdoorsman all my life. I went on my first hunting trip when I was four years old. I owned guns. I, I was trained by the United States Marine Corps in their use, and I was trained further by the Maysville Police Department in their use. So I'm a strong proponent, proponent of safe gun ownership. I, I think it's, it's an important part of our society. But when you see these mass shootings, when you see these things take place, you realize the danger, not just to our communities, but to our first responders as a police officer. I have a deep-seated belief that when those hands are, when those guns are in the wrong hands, when we aren't checking for who has a history of violence, especially against women, when we aren't checking for folks that have made these kind of threats, and when we aren't checking for folks that have these mental illness, then we're not only endangering our communities, but we're endangering our first responders. So I can get behind those proposals that are going to limit the capabilities or the ability of folks with that past history and with those issues to get their hands on these high-powered weapons. What about the weapons themselves? Uh, uh, you know, is there, are there types of weapons that you would uh, be in favor of banning? You know, I don't know that I'm in favor of any bans straight out. I think there's a lot of room here within the Second Amendment to make sure that folks can have safe and responsible gun ownership that they want. But we also have to recognize that these are currently getting in the wrong hands. And we know that because these mass shootings keep happening. So we have to figure out how to keep them out of the wrong hands and how to make sure that, that safe folks doing it the right way can also have their constitutional rights protected. Immigration is a hot button issue in the country and yes, here sir. in Kentucky as well. Congressman Barr has fought hard for a border along the southern U.S. border with Mexico, uh, even helping with the legal aspects of that. Do you support building a wall? You know, I support a strong and secure border, and I support a clear and fair immigration system. But, but, but Bill, I don't support a wall. It, it, it's 2019, not 1619. I want something that secures our border, and it, and it works. I want something that, that uses our tax dollars wisely, that can't be defeated with a ladder. I want something that, that makes use of the technological advances we've made since the 1600s, you know, whether it be drone security and, and enhanced patrols like that. I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to spend money like that. What do you think does need to be done on immigration? I think we need to do several things, and the first thing is we secure our borders. We make sure they're strong. 
Then we have a fair system for legal immigration that's very clear so folks understand exactly how they need to go through that process to be here the right way. Once we've done that, then we can talk about how do we, you know, what are some of the things that, that help out our immigration courts? What are some of the things that help us go through that process smoothly? But first we have to fully define how do you come here the right way, who we're going to have here, and what's the process for doing so so that nobody's confused. You mentioned health care earlier. Whoever's elected to Congress will have one vote. And, you know, you have the, the presidential candidates on the Democratic side with several different approaches and yes, members of uh, Congress with different approaches. Uh, do you support uh, universal health care coverage or Medicaid for all? Or what would be your, uh, your guiding principle on how we approach health care? I'll tell you what my guiding principle is. My guiding principle is health care is too expensive right now. Folks can't afford their deductibles, folks can't afford their premiums, and most importantly, they can't afford to go to the doctor when they don't feel well. And what we end up with is a bunch of folks with easily preventable or easily treatable diseases that, that then have to suffer through the consequences of not getting early treatment. I'm not in favor of Medicare for All. I think there is a framework within which we can, we can make a private health care system work, but I'll tell you what's important. We have to give power to regular people. We have to lessen the ability of these insurance companies to deny valid treatment. I want to tell you a story, Bill. I have a very good friend from law school, and several years ago, uh, she was given a terrible diagnosis of a very rare form of cancer. And her doctor and she developed this plan to treat it and put it in remission. And so she went to her insurance company and said, I, I, I need this treatment, my doctor has recommended, has told me it's gonna put my cancer in remission, and her insurance company told her no. So she went through their appeals process, and the insurance company told her no again. But because she's a fantastic attorney, because she knows about healthcare law and because she knew what to do, she went out and hired an outside review group. They reviewed it, they put together a package and she sent that to the insurance company and forced them to pay for her treatment. And today, Bill, she is in remission, in complete remission. And that's a great outcome for her. But who I worry about are all these folks elsewhere that aren't great healthcare attorneys or don't know what to do and get told by their insurance company no and then have to suffer with the consequences of not getting any treatment. That's what we have to change. If we're going to maintain a, a system that's fair, we've got to make sure people can get treated. As you, We're about a minute left here. As you know, Republicans have been very effective at tying uh, Kentucky uh, Democratic candidates to national figures and then bringing in their own popular uh, Republican figures. President Trump's visit here may have turned the tide last year yes, for Andy Barr and his reelection. Will it be tough with uh, Trump at the top of the ticket and uh, Mitch McConnell uh, second on the ticket next year. It, it will be uh, it will be a challenge, but I knew this was a challenge going in. I, I never thought that this was going to be easy for me. And I'll tell you what I'll say about tying Josh Hicks, a six foot two, two hundred and seventy five pound Marine, to any national figure. If anybody believes I'm going to Washington D.C. to play father leader or to vote the way somebody tells me to, they're they're sorely mistaken. I'm going to go to Washington D.C. and take regular voices and regular problems and I'm going to make sure they get worked on and that we get away from this left versus right and red versus blue, team, team score politics. Let's get stuff done for folks who need it. Appreciate you coming by. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And we hope you'll stay with us on Kentucky Newsmakers from WKYT. Human resources expert Brian Simmons talks about politics in the workplace and other on-the-job topics next on Kentucky Newsmakers. 
We welcome you back to Kentucky Newsmakers from WKYT. We enjoy catching up with human resources expert Brian Simmons whenever we can. There are always so many complicated issues in the workplace these days. It gets even thornier in a politically charged environment and in a time when the country is dealing with emotional issues like immigration and now these mass shootings. What responsibilities do employees and employers have when it comes to getting the job done in these challenging times? Brian Simmons, welcome. We appreciate uh, very much you coming in. Oh, thank you for having me back. Been looking forward to this for about three months I appreciate now. Appreciate you coming, which was the last time I think you were here. You know, there's, there's just never a shortage of topics oh, uh, never. Uh, going on. Uh, this one, of course, very unfortunate with the mass uh, shootings that happened in uh, two different cities, which, you know, sets off all kinds of uh, debate and this enters the workplace and people uh, dig in on, on uh, sides. Uh, what happens when uh, emotional topics uh, yeah. enter the places is where we work. Well, it has a tough impact. As I talk about the business acronym, the image of the organization or the location that's involved, it takes, you know, negative turns, the morale, the culture of the organization, the productivity goes down, the attitude surrounding it, there's a lack of communication, teamwork uh, dissipates. So it has a truly negative impact and there's a lot of divisiveness that enters in because it's an emotionally charged subject, especially when you're talking about a workplace violence incident. How do you work through that? Well, you have to have crisis management team in place and there needs to be a plan beforehand. That's why awareness needs to take place now. Training should have already been in place. Uh, the awareness aspect, some of the things you just can't stop because the workplace is a microcosm of society as a whole. So those things that happen in society sometimes are going to happen in the workplace, but you have to prepare. When you trickle down to places that were not directly affected, but who saw this, who've, who have discussed this uh, in the last week, and those conversations are going on in the workplaces, maybe here in Kentucky and so forth. Right. Uh, how, how does the employer and, and how do the employees deal with that? The fact that you know, people are often drawing lines in the sand. Well, we have to operate in radical transparency, we call it. We have to deal with the facts and not in an emotionally charged environment, uh, not with intent of what we're trying to get across in our point, but let's deal with the facts in, in a way that we respect each other and have effective communication. The only way you can have a good relationship and resolve things of this nature or come to any type of agreement is to have effective communication on it. So we're going to have to discuss it. We, we won't be able to put our heads in the sand and act like these things don't happen and that they're not happening in the workplace, but what do we do to deal with it and get beyond it? And as this uh, harsh rhetoric uh, maybe uh, goes on, uh, it often enters social media. And, uh, you know, in fact, that is uh, a part of what fuels it all. Uh, what do people need to keep in mind as, as to how that reflects upon them personally or upon the organization that they may represent? Bill, that's, that's a great point because they have to keep in mind that these observable behaviors of the things that they're putting on social media, the things that they talk about, the stances and standpoints that they're they're laying out there are viewed potentially worldwide and, and people are forming opinions and perceptions and impressions based on these things that they're putting out there to include in the workplace. So oftentimes people go into the workplace with uh, predisposed attitudes and, and, and charge and inflame things based on a post or somebody liking or not liking a, a, a friend 
or post on social media. It, it's getting really dangerous and people have to be careful. Well, you know, social media has really only been a part of the, the scene for the last dozen years or so, you know, and so right. many people in the workforce had no training in this uh, going, uh, you know, coming up. And many of the kids today uh, seem to not have much guidance about what they, uh, they put out there. Right. Well, that's the issue. We're dealing with laws in the workplace and employment laws that have been in place from back in 1930s, 1960s, and we have yet to upgrade things to deal with the technological advances that have taken place in the workplace. The, the things that are happening that we just didn't expect to happen back then. There's still no law surrounding workplace bullying, no law surrounding workplace violence. So we take other laws and try to frame them around the conversation and that doesn't work. We have to have real conversations and real action. True behaviors change behaviors for the positive in order to resolve these and, and yet these things are, you know, they, they are going on. There are the arguments, there are the, the, the disagreements that go on. How are uh, companies to handle that? Well, they're to handle it by actually nipping it in the bud. Uh, no more, well, that's just the way Brian is, you know, he's just argumentative like that. But when we start talking in terms of third person, them, and they, that's just the way they are, and that's just them. We really have to be careful because now we've already set sides, and then we start to give opinions based on, uh, you know, again, a predisposed, whether it's a party line, a, a political stance, or something like that, and that's where that venom is coming into the workplace. I mean, we are well aware, we, we can't step around the fact of the presidency and everything that's happening around that. That's in the workplace. People are talking about it. And what does that do to productivity? Oh, it, it, again, negative impact. It, it's decreasing productivity because the amount of time that we spend talking about it, uh, arguing about it, being mad, and, and, and people are, again, workplace bullying, sabotaging each other, others' work projects based on these type of unconsciously biased behaviors. You know, teamwork is a word that we use so often uh, in the workplace. Uh, how do you make that word action? Ooh, you, you actually have to develop and manage the behaviors daily. Uh, there's not enough, um, I guess, importance put into the aspect of developing the employees consistently. Not just one time, not just the training when they come in, but they have to be retrained. Again, things change, things evolve, and we have to keep our people's skills and behaviors evolved as well. Mind opening, eye opening uh, type exactly. experiences. Exactly. Yeah. We're all imperfect trying to manage each other on a daily basis. What could go wrong, I say? Just about everything. So we have to be mindful, keep an open mind, show respect and appreciation for the work and the people that are there. That's the key to really start having that good relationship. Are there flashpoints when you, you know, we're in an election year in Kentucky right now in the statewide race. Next year we'll be in the presidential and congressional races. Oh, yeah. Uh, that brings out a lot of discussions. A lot of discussions. I, I actually do a session on workplace stress. And it talks about the top 10 factors that increase workplace stress. And one of those factors is election years. So, and I always go by this rule of like 12 year cycles. So I look back at what happened in 2008, you know, the, the time frame, financial time frames. I mean, it was a pretty stressful time. And you sort of look at where we're at now, 
2020 uh, could shape up to be quite interesting on a lot of fronts. Could be an interesting year. What are some of the other stressors? Other stressors are um, your, your boss and supervision, if there's not a good relationship there with your boss in the workplace, uh, shift hours, uh, working the, the midnight shift and the overnight shift and then trying to be social, you know, during the day, things like that. Um, lack of work and lack of use of your skills that you have, what they call boredom, it can actually be a, a workplace stressor. So different things like that and uh, you know you got your regular social stressors, societal stressors that come in when you're bringing all these things in to work and then you have your intrinsic workplace stressors, heavy workloads, things like that, that can really burden people with a lot of stress. So you can just imagine the stress that's going to be involved in 2020. We're here with human resources expert Brian Simmons. We're going to come back in just a moment. Talk about how companies are supposed to recruit people these days when workers have many, many options out there. We're coming back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We're back here on Kentucky Newsmakers discussing workplace issues with human resources expert Brian Simmons. One reason that we uh, like to talk about this so often, you spend about a third of your life at work. Yeah, you, you, know? you really do. I mean, when you think about it, you're a full-time employee at work. You spend the majority of your waking hours during the work week at work. So we would hope it's a place that you really get some joy out of. You know. <laughs> You're doing a, a seminar right now and just recently wrapped one up with a, a large group of executives here in Kentucky, playing by the rules. Playing by what the rules. What does that mean? Managing boundaries and behaviors in the workplace. And again, the focus is on the behaviors in the workplace. It's because of the behaviors that a person feels like they're being harassed. It's because of the behaviors, the observable behaviors, that a person feels like they're being discriminated against. So what are the boundaries in the workplace and then how do we manage the behaviors according to the boundaries in the workplace? So we start off with the laws. You have to know the laws surrounding your business, your workplace, then the company policies, then the agreements, and, and, and it goes down like that all the way down to you know dressing grooming policies and things like that. So you have to play by the rules. When you step out of bounds, what happens? Play stops. You got to take time to get back on the court. You're not scoring or anything like that. It's the same way in the workplace. Have companies had to make a lot of adjustments in recent years uh, because of the fact uh, unemployment is relatively low. It's difficult to recruit people. Uh, as you say, uh, dressing, uh, has, dressing has changed as, as far as uh, fashion and, and you know the tattoo issue right, and yes. other things. I mean, how, uh, how many changes have companies had to make here? Oh, they've made several. And, and uh, a lot of them are changes that they ordinarily would not have made. Uh, I'm working in a, with a client down in the southern Kentucky area in 40 mile radius from that particular location there are about 3,000 jobs and really about a little bit over 300 qualified qualified candidates for those jobs so a lot of the companies at this point are sort of throwing their hands up in the air and shrinking the amount of positions that are available and sort of consolidating positions and employers are having to think outside the box they have to think outside the box you know again people re-entering the workforce whether it be uh, people that have been staying at home taking care of kids people that have been incarcerated and retrained uh, people that have been in recovery programs and things like that uh, you just have to think outside of the box. Uh, you know, we've gotten some hints the opioid crisis is showing some improvements, but you have said 
that the entire impact of that is yet to be felt? Oh, it, 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 we are at the tip of the iceberg of it. In fact, uh, we talk about the impact from the, the crack epidemic years ago, the 80s and, and things like that, and that was just felt you know, really 2000. So now we're primed to start seeing, and we are seeing it, uh, health benefit costs versus someone now that's a caretaker of their grandkids and things due to the parents not being there because of the opioid crisis. Uh, grief and, and bereavement leave having to be taken because of family members passing away because of this. And then this continues on just because there's not a placard above somebody's head that says this is going on. You know they're bringing, in, bringing it in with them into the workplace daily. Even with the limited labor pool, uh, those who are trying to onboard employees should be looking for uh, some some signals as to, to the kinds of uh, behaviors that uh, that might be there going forward. Exactly, it's behavior based. You know, I always say once is an accident, twice coincidence, three times. Now that's a pattern. You know, if the person has has been late for the interview three times in a row, they're probably not going to work out in that role. You know, likewise, it works on the positive. When somebody is, is there on time every day, you know, good attitude, they, they have a good opportunity for a good career. Are employers going to have to go back to traditional things like job fairs in order to uh, you know, build some excitement about their, their company to bring people in? They certainly will. I mean, the table has turned. It's a, a job candidate's market now, so the employers will have to put uh, advertising and marketing dollars to it. The employers will have to sell themselves. Thus, the employers will be responsible for making sure that they have a culture that is a culture that has a positive impact, that positive image, that positive respect among people before candidates are, are apply. As parents and uh, certainly students adjust to uh, back to school schedules, again, they, you know, the parents are now running kids to class or maybe they, mm -hmm. somebody forgot something, they might have to leave the workplace to, to take it to school or, uh, you know, or the afternoon, the, the activities are out there. Mm -hmm. How much flexibility uh, do employees need and how much are employers willing to give? Well, they need much flexibility. It truly has to be the relationship and effective communication in the relationship. The employee has to feel comfortable enough that they can go to the supervisor and say, hey, this is what happened without the supervisor either being skeptical, but that comes with the relationship that's already been established. So it's employee's responsibility to make sure that they don't get to that three times a pattern stance and that trust isn't there. Brian, it's always fun when you stop by. Thank you. And you're doing Thank some you. radio now in Somerset, right? WTLO. WTLO 1480 <laughs> AM 97.7 FM on your radio dial. All right. We appreciate you coming. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT This Morning. Make it a good week ahead.